0: So why do I want you to know this? Because Peter's archive is stored in the Valerie Wing. And while some of you have personal archives and will either have engaged in some way with the library about their care or wondered what you should do with them, and many of you will have used personal archives in a reading room here or in another library, most of you, with a few notable exceptions in this room, will not have experienced the sheer physicality involved in archival work or have an understanding of what it takes for an archive like this to be brought into a reading room, neatly boxed and folded, and preferably with a handy finding aid. And you may therefore think differently about what an archive is. Where you may see evidence, I also see material culture. Where you may see something finite, I see a process. And I'd like to share with you a little bit um, this view from the other side. Um, and give you a taste of the riches in Peter's papers. So here they are, 115 boxes in the Valerie Wynn, takes up a good bit of shelving, and uh, in fact, Sid Nolan is right next to him. Uh, As I said to Jane and Catherine last night, we do now um, stack things pretty much in order of receipts, but we used to play naughty games, such as putting Patrick White on a shelf next to Sid Nolan. Anyway, this gives you a sense of the physical dimensions of an archive like this. But, you know, the boxes look quite tame, don't they? They look still, stopped in time, but they're not. They embody other dimensions, and especially that of elastic time. Peter's archive itself spans six decades, so obviously it covers his lifetime. But I also want to focus a bit on the time it took to get this archive into the Valerie Wing. First contact between Peter and the National Library of Australia was in 1981 when Peter wrote to the then national librarian inquiring about the library's interest in purchasing some of his manuscripts. It was nearly 32 years later when the bulk of Peter's archive arrived here um, uh, alongside, um, uh, you know, according to our acquisition files, which are like our silent archive, I have to say. And this is not a record. The longest period we've ever had from first contact to acquisition was 44 years for the papers of Sir and Dixon, and by pure luck I was the one who ended up finalising their move to the library. Surely one of the greatest arguments for long-lived memory institutions and for supporting adequately those long-lived memory institutions is that relationships can outlive protagonists on either side. The baton of relationship stewardship stewardship passes from one manuscript's librarian or curator to another. And one of the great satisfactions of developing a collection like this is that you know that it will last much, much longer than you do. Now, at the time of that first contact, Peter made the mistake that many writers do. He assumed that the library would only be interested in, literally, his manuscripts, his notebooks and drafts. But in discussions and visits to the library in the early 80s, um, and and especially discussions with Cathy Santamaria, the library managed to kind of expand Peter's understanding of, of what we wanted to think about in terms of an archive. But still, the first transfer in 1982 was relatively small. It was just five boxes of notebooks and literary drafts. The library kept in touch, as it does, congratulating Peter on his awards and indicating its interest in more manuscripts. By the early 1990s, Bruce Bennett was actively engaged in being Peter's interlocutor with the library, discussing the possibility of more archives actually coming to Australia. But Peter was also in discussion with the British Library about his papers, in fact, for some decades, back to the early 60s. There's nothing surprising about this. Peter lived for 50 years in London. It was his home. He was as integral to the English poetry scene as he was to the Australian. I suspect that he had genuine and longstanding doubt about whether he wished his archival legacy to be in his birth or his adopted country. That, and I know that Peter had imbibed a sense that the National Library would not be able to make a competitive offer to purchase his archive, which turned out not to be the case. Having dealt with many writers over my career, I know how important that cold, hard cash can be, how it funds the next six months or twelve precious months of writing. But as often happens, it was Peter's illness which prompted him to consider this again. Uh, Bruce and Peter Rose had long advocated Australia as the home for the Peter's archive. At Peter's instigation, and alas, when he was quite ill, his agent, Claire Drysdale, contacted me in 2009. We established contact with Peter, sending our then London consultant, Sarah Joins, to visit his home. I'd met Peter first in 1995, when I was curator of special collections at the UNSW at ADFA Library. He had a fellowship, and he was delighted to find that, A, all the Australian titles he wanted, um, poetry titles were op- uh, available on open access shelves, and B, to find that I then at least, uh, you know at that time, knew a thing or two about Australian poetry. We met several times during my tenure at ADVA, and I think that helped when Peter knew that he was running out of time to deal with his archive and he needed to make a decision. My letter to Peter of the 21st of August 2009 was unequivocal. We were interested in his entire archive, and we were willing to have it valued on site and to make him an offer to purchase. Sarah visited again and estimated that the archive would fill perhaps 50 to 60 boxes. Our preference was to have it packed and shipped to Australia for valuation. Of course, on the understanding that we'd return it if we could not agree on a price. That was not okay with Peter. He was ill, faced with upcoming surgery, facing medical setbacks. I think the real reason was he was not ready to part with the archive for the simple reason that he was not ready to part with life. We needed to find a solution, and it came in the form of Nicholas Pounder, who's in the audience today. The senior management of the library knew and agreed that the only way forward was to send Nicholas to London to view and value the collection. and We all knew this would be very difficult because Peter was by now seriously ill. Too ill for Nicholas to visit in October or November or December, but by mid-January 2010, Nicholas was on site. Peter's illness meant that Nicholas could spend only a few hours a day in the flat. And of course his desire to convey the importance of parts of Peter's desire to convey the importance of parts of the archive meant many long conversations and digressions. But progress was made. With Peter's help. Nicholas gradually listed much of the archive, noting the location of material, what it looked like, smooth black notebook, red box folder, etc., and its contents. And in the case of Peter's notebooks, Nicholas listed most poem titles. He noted major correspondence and the importance of material. They also did some sorting together. Now, Nicholas knew that I wouldn't approve of this. And in fact, when I eventually got to London and found lots of little brown craft envelopes with Nicholas writing on the outside, I thought, oh, they were sorting this material. As an archivist, I value original order. That is, keeping the records in pretty much the way in which they were used during their working life. I know that sorting material in specific ways, by subject or by person or chronologically, inevitably reveals some meanings, but it obscures others. It's a matter of camouflage, perhaps, Chris. But this partial sorting process, which followed some other, clearly some other sorting efforts earlier in Peter's life, was definitely good for Peter and was, in fact, instigated by him. In one of his notes to me, Nicholas wrote, in fact, there is a case to make for this process amounting to a tonic. He's got back a bit of color is finding things long thought lost, and is up and waiting for me to arrive each day, and I like to think of that. Nicholas ended up spending 19 days with Peter, and for those outside the archival world, this is an extraordinary amount of time to invest in trying to understand an archive. He then returned to Australia, prepared a thoughtful, insightful and carefully argued valuation. Now look at Nicholas has had some pretty terrific valuing in Ginks, and I suspect this one was right up there with the work he did for us on the papers of Patrick White in uh, 2006. So by March 2010, Peter had agreed to the library's offer and we'd agreed that the transfer and purchase would not be finalised until after his death. And of course that came the following month. Sarah attended Peter's funeral on the library's behalf. In June of that year, I attended the Sydney Memorial Service and met Jane and Catherine. Now, I talked about time earlier. In this, as in most cases, time needed to pass before Christine could contemplate parting with the archive and the enormous task this would be. We stayed in touch, in particular noting a couple of opportunities where library staff would be in Europe and were available to pack the archive, but it was all too soon for Christine. Another opportunity arose, this time at about the right time for Christine. In early 2013, um, my husband and I planned a a brief visit to England where our oldest son was at Oxford, as a precursor to what turned turned out to be a fabulous cycling holiday in Spain. I'd moved on from manuscripts in 2001, but I'd kept my hand in and I really wanted this collection secured for the library. And of course, by then, Christine knew me by letter and phone calls. So the library agreed on a recall to duty that I could spend four days in London packing the archive. On the second floor of this library, Kylie Scroop and I poured over Nicholas's list to try and do an estimate of the total size of the collection fully boxed. We sent vast quantities of packing materials to Christine and Peter's flat, and we needed most of them. We negotiated an export licence for material over 50 years old. We talked to customs. We found the right art removalist to ensure the archive got safely from London to Canberra, which it did. There are so many logistics involved in a collection uplift of this size. I'd written to Christine to warn her that the entire business of having a personal archive removed from a home can be really distressing, almost like another death, and that I would be working brutally fast. She wisely chose to spend much of my packing time elsewhere while extending just the right amount of hospitality. Russell and I were staying nearby, and the walks to and from Cleveland Square in an absolutely freezing march March, the start, a start and the end of each eight-hour packing day. So I met Christine on the 26th of March and I got down to business. Remember, because of Nicholas's work, I already had a pretty good sense of what was there. A good part of the job was locating material Nicholas had identified. Red box file, top right shelf of the bedroom cupboard, etc checking it off the list and packing it. And the rest was finding a lot of material that Nicholas did not see. There were nooks and crannies in the flat everywhere in which archives lurked. So there was a lot more material to be packed than we'd estimated. So find, identify, check, box, annotate list, whole box out to the third floor landing. By the end of day one, I'd filled 28 boxes. In some cases, passing boxes to Christine while I perched on a ladder. On day two, after managing many trips up and down ladders with boxes, I called on Russell to help me with 10 really heavy boxes, up 25, 30 kilos each, perhaps, full of papers sliding around inside them, you know, an OHS nightmare, that were in closet shelves at least 10 feet off the ground. I held the ladder and I tried to think of Russell's strong uh, muscles and not of his joint replacement. So it was kind of, <laughs> by, he'd, he'd had two by then. So uh, by the end of t- day two, I'd packed 55 boxes. And in a note back to Kylie, uh, curator of archives, I noted, I am very glad of all my gym work because I really need my strengths. In truth, I reckon it would normally have taken two people four days to do this, given the volume and inaccessibility of material. So although I'm certainly the most expensive packer the library has ever employed, I've decided I'm very good value. (laughs) By the end of day three, I'd filled 90 boxes, of which 65, 65 boxes were filled with correspondence. Along the way, I'd established a rough archival series structure and used this to order my packing and to make the archive more immediately useful for researchers. I'd discussed some material with Christine that she was not ready to send and documented that, and in fact, it's arrived this year, which is great. Now, on the 29th of March, I had to call in the help. That is, not just one heirs man, but two heirs men. I'd called our son, Glyn, the night before to see if he could possibly come down to London to help out if needed. Yes. Russell and Glynn both came to help me with the publications on this last day, packing these. We needed to go through a large set of journal issues and many, many books to identify what might be needed for the library's collection. So the rules of engagement were clear. If the journal or book was published in Australia, we would not take it as I could be sure that we held it here at the library. If it was published outside Australia, it needed to include a poem, essay, review, or other piece by or about Peter to make the cut. So I'd like to give you the picture. So many books in three rooms to be selected into boxes. Perilously little time before the removalists arrived that afternoon. And with us flying out to Spain at 5.30 the next morning, there was no room for movement here. Clear instructions. Much gratitude from me to my blokes for helping out with this task and oh the frustration as the clock ticked and they would stop, ponder, come to share a really good Peter poem with me or find something incredibly interesting by or about him. I know he's a really good poet, I would say. (laughs) I'm pleased, but not surprised. There's a letter or a poem tucked in that book, I'd say. And yes, I'm sure that one would be fantastic, but can we just get back to the boxes? In short, it was great. They loved helping out. They loved getting a little sense of the person whose papers I was collecting, and with their help, the three of us finished packing the collection and the publications just as Vince and Lee from the Removalists Williams and Hill came to start taping and labelling the box. And it is honestly one of my fondest archival memories in more than 20 years of this work. As is sitting with Christine after every one of those boxes was carried downstairs, I'm happy to say by the Removalists, not by me, and loaded onto the truck. And we'd seen the truck off, which was quite a moment for Christine and my menfolk had gone off to do something else. We sat and had a cup of tea, although I believe Christine had something stronger, Mm -hmm. and we talked about families, children, her practice, relationships, and everything slowed after four very fast days. The collection was on its way. Eight weeks later, after transport and customs processes, I was able to send Christine that photo of the boxes on the shelf safe. Now, Nicholas's valuation report included a section headed Terrain, in which he wrote Flat 3, 43 Cl- Cleveland Square, and the papers of Peter Porter to be found there, has been and still is the supporting ecosystem of an Australian writer who has lived and worked in London for well over 50 years. Each room at Cleveland Square reveals archaeological levels of industry and passion, and in almost equal proportions are all manner of recorded music, books and things printed. In the face of such a tiered and faceted working environment, one cannot help but think of the complete removal and reconstruction of the painter Francis Bacon's studio a team of ten archaeologists and conservators spent three years dismantling the room and its contents and transporting them across the Irish Sea to an art gallery in Dublin. But, he said, to practical matters. (laughs) So Nicholas described archaeological levels of industry and passion. For me, on arrival and in my four days working there, for me the flat was the archive and it was the life. I've packed many archives, in neat filing cabinets, in attics, in offices, those stored in too many wine boxes, even one in a shipping container high in the Blue Mountains. But never have I had the same overwhelming feeling of an archive completely inhabiting a space. Now, many of you will have visited Cleveland Square, so you know what I'm talking about. The apartment's spacious, comprising drawing room, dining room, main bedroom, bare bedroom, Christine's office, kitchen, bathroom, hallway. So where, may you ask, was Peter's office? Where was his archive? It was everywhere. Every shelf, every cupboard, every top of cupboard, every underbed, every tabletop, every windowsill, bursting with the life of this ecosystem. This is just his, his desk, actually, in the drawing room by the window. Its creator was gone, but so much remained, giving me the clearest sense of how he had worked and where he had worked and what mattered in this materiality of his archive. I was far, far too busy to document the archive in photographs and the few I took were lost in an unfortunate misunderstanding with my iPad a year or so later. But I have the keenest visual memories of Peter's archive everywhere and most especially at this small desk in the drawing room room, overlooking the gardens where he'd worked right until his death. Papers coming in, papers coming out, industry, passion, all in piles on the desk and on the deep window sills covering every surface. I knew I was there to take it away, but I could and did enjoy its rich, unctuous, exuberant materiality until I had to take it. I thought often of my conversations with Mary Ann Deaver about the materiality of the archive and I'd recommend some of her recent work on this. As I packed my understanding of the archive deepened, I realised that it would be one of the richest richest sets of 20th century correspondence in a library collection brimming with them. This is a truly great archive, one which we are so honoured to have. I was privileged to pack it and to send it on its way to Australia where it belongs. So more than three years have passed since that collection arrived and I've been engaged in quite different work, still about collections but all in the digital realm. Today's event gave me a wonderful excuse to spend some time with some of those boxes in our beautiful new Special Collections reading room and I wanted to use that exploration to give you a sense of what's in the archive and how it might be used. The collection is still pretty much as I packed it. Um, I'm happy to say that with the assistance of the Ava Colesman and Ray Matthew bequest, the library hopes to arrange and describe the collection in the next year or two. This will be a very large task and require very careful planning. It's rare for archives to stand alone, and in this case more than 20 other archives held by the library are kind of satellites. Um, including material, you know, that include material written by or relating to Peter Porter. So he's not alone here in the library. I was fortunate enough to assist with the transfer of Bruce Bennett's Porter-related material before Bruce's own death, sitting again having cups of tea and quiet conversation with an old friend in Bruce's and Trisha's Garen home. Other archives are from some of you in the room today. And I like to think of your archives having conversations when everybody has gone home from the library. It was a joy to open these boxes again. And this time, of course, I had a little more time. Where to start? Well, I started with box one with tiny appointment diaries, the Collins Gentleman's Diary for every year from 1962 to 2007. So that's what's um, on the outside, Collins Gentleman's Diary. And I just wanted to give you a flavour of what happens in these diaries. 22 March 1963, lunch with Gavin Hewitt. 1 July 1963, lunch with Anthony Thwaites. 13 May 1965, poetry panel. 23 April 1966, lunch with Mrs Lumsden. By 1966 there is something on almost every day. Readings, lunches with other poets, Group meetings, broadcasts, arts council meetings, lunch with Richard Neville on the 23rd of November in 1966, a crescendo of a building career. And at the back of the 1966 diary and the others, a list of payments in by month in tiny writing. £8 on the 8th of March for a BBC discussion on Dylan Thomas, £6 for publication of May We Get Drunk in The Listener, £9.10 for reading at the Southampton Arts Festival. For the year of 1966, receipts of £521 for his poet's life. By 1968, those receipts had grown to more than £1,000, with more payments for reviews with important journals and newspapers, New Statesman, the BBC, £27 for an overseas broadcast on Coleridge. By 1970, visits to Larkin and an Arts Council tour Receipts of between three and four thousand pounds. By 1978, receipts of somewhere around 9,000 pounds. These receipts alone tell the story of Peter's incredible industry and his growing stature within the British arts world. And actually last night, (laughs) Jane was telling me that Peter was obsessed with the post and would go up and down the five flights of stairs all the time for the post, waiting for the checks that of course he's then recording in the back of those little diaries. So the diary entries alone provide a veritable roadmap to where Peter was, who he was seeing, what he was doing, where his work was being placed in print and in broadcast. But there's more. In the front of each diary is an address list, and for me this was just a wonderful who's who of the, of the Australian literary and artistic world and of the British, with which of course I'm much less familiar. Jill Neville in Paris, Don Banks in London some wonderful juxtapositions. In 1974, for example, Seamus Heaney and Shelton Lee are on adjacent lines. And I just thought, now, there's an interesting pairing. (laughs) That same year came a trip to Australia. This is the 1974 trip you were talking about, Chris. 7 March, uh, fly to Australia. 29 March, ring Maloof. 24 April, simply 7.30pm, 20 Martin Road, Centennial Park. 3 June, June, Clive James Cabaret. The, the diaries also have very prosaic things. September 76, both girls to the dentist. <laughs> the names start accumulating. Thwaites, Lumsden, Gavin Hewitt, Nicholas Hasluck, Christopher Koch The 1978 diary has gentlemen's, remember they're all on the front, Columns' gentlemen's diary, scratched out. And a teenage hand, clearly, had written in its place, CADS. So it becomes the, the, Col- the, the Collins CADS diary for 1978. And I wonder whether it was Jane or Catherine. <laughs> in 1979, the first instalment of the Australia Council Fellowship, so true Australian recognition of his stature. By 1983, addresses for Les Murray, Sally McInerney, Roger Cavell, Arthur Boyd, Seamus Heaney, Clive James, John Tranter, Bruce Bennett, Jack Hibbard, Chris Koch, David Lumsden. More and more names and addresses in the first few pages of his diaries in tiny, increasingly crowded writing. This is a rich life of literary and artistic friendships. By 1985, he's earning 20,000 pounds than the industry, the workport, output is just phenomenal. 6th of October, 98, the Boyd's at Bundanong. February 99, 70th birthday, book launch at Australia House. New names appear, Kinsella, Morag Fraser. 18th of May 1999, a reading at ADFA, and I remember, because I was there. (laughs) The scaffolding of those diaries, meetings, friends, contact travel, is fleshed out in Peter's 65 boxes of correspondence. Letters from friends and fellow poets mixed in with the prosaic. So a 1996 letter from James Griffin of ABC Arts nestles against a letter regarding the fair rent application for flat 3, 42 Cleveland Square. Letter after letter after letter, and many of them in these... There are so many of these box files in, in every possible colour. Now, some of the letters are copies of, of, uh, of his own. So there's one to Christine from the University of Queensland where he says he had lots of dazzling conversation in the bars between the papers at the conference. And it's an ASOL conference. Christine, of course, has her own collection of letters from Peter as he's right. There are many family letters and cards, including a Mother's Day card from Jane to Peter. You'll always be both to me. Love, Jane. Or the letter Peter wrote to Jane from Lane Cove in 1976, Anna, another girl, swims a lot and follows Australian pop groups I've never heard of with names such as Sherbet and Abba. (laughs) And one I loved, an email from his granddaughter Amelia in March 2003, did you used to play netball? (laughs) It's just just gorgeous. Uh, There are, of course, much, much sadder letters, especially those following Janice's death in December 1974. And I won't dwell on those, uh, because they're uniform, of course, in nobody having the right words. But I think possibly gruff Les Murray gets it right when he put on a postcard, if the girls would like to visit a farm in their school holidays, we've just bought one. There are so many letters of pure friendship, where friendship kind of dominates wit and literary business. In 1988, for example, Brenda Beaver writes um, writes to Peter detailing Beaver's collapse and long hospitalisation um, while Bruce was still in intensive care. He's been so ill, Peter. Still a long way to go, but impressed on me that I must write, thanking you for the books. And slightly later, in a a letter that Bruce um, dictates to Brenda because he's still unable to write, he writes to Peter, your letter's warmth and strength were so invigorating that I must express my thanks. The books you said, as I said before, helped me to continue to want to live. You and Arthur Boyd, it's those books, come up with a tour de force each time. Trish Cavell writes in 1980 to wish Peter a happy birthday and along the way, a Australia for him. I'm sitting in the dining chair, looking out at the gum trees and watching the birds feeding. At present there are ten rosellas, one king parrot, sundry caravans, three cockatoos, and two magpies, all making a din and waiting for more food. And thinking about what it would have been like for him to receive that letter, I, I particularly like that Thought of a little bit of Australia making its way. There are lots of letters of thanks, um, including one from Adrian in May 2003, where you set out your hopes to give your writing a, a real go after leaving ADVA and you continue. I very much appreciated our last phone conversation in which you recommended a break from literature and a good dose of Handel's operas. I took this advice and have had great pleasure from Alcina and Ariadante. But there are also thousands of letters, and there would be thousands, probably tens, 10,000 letters possibly in this collection, uh, where the literary is, I think, the dominant force in the friendship. And my impression looking at these as a group is that those writing to Peter rose to his serious wit. That people are at their most witty when they're writing to him. And why not when you might get a letter from Peter himself that will say, death is doing unpleasant things. This is what he writes when his friends start dying. So I just want to pull out a few choice examples for you um, of the the kinds of things that people felt um, safe to write to Peter. Uh, These are from David Malouf, who's um, talking about a forthcoming Skullthorpe opera. Sorry, Robin, this is going to hurt. (laughs) Uh, Skullthorpe's papers are here too. Malouf writes, and no doubt three or four hours of dongs and gongs and cymbals and other assaults on the nervous system. (laughs) (laughs) Um, David Malouf also wrote in another letter about the Melbourne gang I'm sure not you. Of young poets keeps up a continuous barrage at everybody who isn't 25 or under and hooked on the Americans. It's part of the new poetic, of course, that you establish your authenticity by being beastly to everyone who's ever published outside the group. I missed the latest Slaughter of the Fathers. It happened, of all places, at Toowoomba. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, really people are they're witty, bitchy, either way. It doesn't really matter. Um, This little one from Murray Bale on the early Peter Carey. A smart bugger, the critics have raved about Peter Carey. His book, The Fat Man in History, Short Stories, was interesting but thin. If you know what I mean. <laughs> uh, and in fact, that little refrain, there's a whole lot of letters from Murray Bale where he says something and then a little catty and then says, if you know what I mean. So it's great. Uh, Real McMaster writing, we met Dorothy Green piloting Christina Stead out at Judith Wright's place on Sunday. Dorothy looked rather like the possum in the magic pudding, although I couldn't be sure if Christina was the wombat or the portable grindstone. <laughs> And uh, Janet Turner Hospital, there's a lot of letters from hospital writing from Kingston, Ontario, in in March 1988. This is lovely. As a matter of fact, I'm beginning to be quite embarrassed by my impulse to answer letters as soon as I get them, since so many people have commented, teased me, reproached me, it's oppressive, I've had friends write. They're placed in a permanent state of owing me a letter and the guilt is wearing them out. So I've begun to feel that I answer the letters the way other people smoke cigarettes. It's a sort of neurotic compulsion and I should try to cure it. And I kind of think of people um, you know, polishing up, maybe polishing a little bit their letters because they're writing to him. And one of my favourites, which is an undated note from Clive James, Dear Peter, You may have seen in the papers that the BBC is paying me £780 million per week. The awful thing about these rumours is that they are almost true. (laughs) The dedicated work you do is so meanly rewarded. You will make me happy in my conscience and at little cost to myself if you accept the enclosed with no questions asked and treat it as an outright gift and a token of my increasing admiration. Your fan, Clive." Now, this correspondence is so voluminous and so filled with evidence of Peter's replies, either in the form of his typescript copies, and at one point he says that for him the typescript letter letter is his natural form of communication, but there's also the implicit evidence, of course, of his um, replies. So with all of this correspondence and hearing about you know all the talk, it seems remarkable that Peter got any work done at all. <laughs> but the archive is also really rich in evidence of Peter's work and of his working methods. For example, on numerous pages on advert letterhead uh, produced during that 1995 st- stint when he's preparing an anthology of Australian poetry, he's written, does one choose what seemed the best poems and then analyze them, or choose what one judges to be characteristic and hope that the overall impact will be of good work. What are my objects to illustrate activity, diversity, preoccupation, imagination, achievement, and indirectly to illustrate a nation's personality by collecting its most authoritative work? So a beautiful kind of description of him thinking out what he's doing in this anthology. And then a little note. Don't set up a team royalty autonomy, the Murray Items versus the Trent rights. There's also much evidence of his, thought, of his thoughts about his own work. For example, in a letter to his friend Paddy, he wrote, Alas, I cannot turn my hand to a memoir of my own. I'm quite incapable of recalling the past in any sort of cheerful company. I'm I'm quite capable of recalling the past in any sort of cheerful company, but when I sit down to compose anything seriously autobiographical, I freeze up. The main reason, I believe, is because a fearful inner prompting says to me, Are you telling the truth? Are you compromising? Are you betraying the seriousness of what happened? And I think that last sentence kind of spoke so directly to what he's doing in his poetry. In an essay titled, How We Started to Write, he wrote, starting to write is less important than continuing to read. Genius is not uh, ten-parts perspiration to talent, but almost entirely a matter of imitation. You become yourself by trying to be somebody better. He also writes, I was lucky in that my friends early on told me how bad my work was without suggesting I abandon the hope. The other great encourager is being part of a gang, a group, a set of ambitious colleagues, which is of course what he had in London. And he also scribbled, I've never ceased to hope that I will write the great poem I'm looking for and it will be a gathering of all my better attempts. Well, this archive is chock-a-block with attempts, better or worse. It was wonderful to unpack the set of Peter's notebooks in the reading room, uh, take them out of the bags, so I put them in three years ago, and remind myself. They're quite a mix. There's a couple of lovely, elegant, cloth-covered notebooks through to the bog-standard newsagent issue. There's one that's got a cute little cat on the front, I presume not added by him. They're absolutely full of poem drafts, but they also include notes for music programs, thoughts towards an autobiography, lists of influences, verse plays. Uh, We were talking about the plays last night, him writing plays all the time and sending them off under a pseudonym and never getting anywhere with them. But who could resist this stage direction? Monsieur Voltaire appears on stage in evening dress as announcer of a television program. He smiles commercially at audience. just love it. <laughs> They're also, these notebooks are also full of little enclosures. They've got their own distinct materiality. Some are in pencil, some are in blue ink, some black ink. One is written, written in incredibly pink baro, And I must say, my heart both sang and sank at that pink because we know that pigments like this tend to fade much more quickly than the boring black and blue. So there is, I have to say, a PhD waiting to be done, if only this kind of bibliographic PhD was feasible these days, just identifying the fragments in these notebooks, and not just in the notebooks, drafts elsewhere, through the box files, in the bags, uh, in the, the piles of stuff. So the kind of thing that we see is some um, is this, um, five ink-stained sheets in pen. With notes towards the poem "Wonder Boy" for Mr. Roger Cavell, um, so this, there are these five sheets of this poem. But on the back, there's a completely different poem, "Love the Musician." So you've got, you know, these five sheets of pa- paper, both encapsulating um, drafts of poems. There are so many crossings out. The poetry clearly came hard to him; it didn't come easy. Um, there was a, a page, for example, with three short first attempts, all crossed out titled Third Anniversary, Frequency in Pain and Loving to Comply, which turn into the much longer learning to comply. And to my eye, it certainly looks as though quite often multiple very short poem beginnings turn into much longer, denser poems. And I think it would be really interesting if somebody looked at that. Occasionally, you know, thinking about structure, there are indeed rhyme marks written down um, the margin of a draft and even Peter Porter needed to check sometimes. So I think, you know, there's another PhD on all those thousands of poem drafts, just throwing it out there, uh, not contained in the notebooks. And then there's all the other literary business. The reviews, almost always kind as well as insightful, but occasionally devastating. For example, Somewhere in the middle of this, this line, somewhere in the middle of the confusion of Wendy Mulford's poems, there is a critical th- theory trying to get out. Oh, you know, just... Mm. Uh, or, of course, on reviewing David Mars' edition of White's letters expressing his disappointment at finding that these letters seldom achieve any of the excitement of White's best fiction. And I guess seeing all of these witty letters going backwards and forwards, I I think that was what he was looking for, and he didn't see it. The judging of so many literary prizes. Uh, I smiled when I came across a set of lists from 1996 divided into short lists, strong runners, and back of field. And it could have been a lot worse (laughs) in in, in a kind of a... They're out. (laughs) Um, Lists, so many lists. Um, lists for readings, lists for recordings of operas, lists for inclusions and exclusions in volumes, scripts for ABC and BBC radio drama and features, the music journalism, Frighteningly knowledgeable and erudite. Yeah, I love this one. This is just fantastic. I mean, in fact, we know that he loves Blake, but he doesn't like that bit of it. And I thought, oh, T. S. Eliot at the top of the list there. <laughs> so his music journalism, of course, is incredibly erudite. Even if he hadn't heard of Sherbet and thought that Abba was an Australian band. Yeah, this is great. Um, <laughs> and just to go back then to, I think this one. This. Um, this list of my own classic greats. There are, uh, there are actually several points through the archive. I'd imagine that if you really went through it, you, m- you might even find 100. Where he kind of lists his most important influences, um, but the dislikes was the only one that I actually found. Yeah. There are scripts for the ABC and BBC radio drama and features. So opening one box after another, one is struck by what Nicholas called industry. Overwhelming evidence of constant work in multiple arenas. Peter's work ethic was clearly phenomenal. So sitting in the reading room, as I have been, opening boxes, one is immediately drawn into this huge accumulation of physical and evidential detail, feeling the paper between the fingers, unfolding letters, finding hidden treasures lurking. This is engaging with the archive at the page level, at the line level, at the crossed-out line level, and at the level of the word. In a year or two, when we can make this collection, we can arrange this and describe this collection, the collection will feel different again. Pages will be unfolded. Rusty clips will be removed or will be neatly placed in archival folders. This is all essential archival apparatus to preserve the collection and make it, uh, make it useful. But again, it's going to go through yet another process. This detail feels so different and yet is so intimately related to the feelings I had back at Cleveland Square, packing the archive fast and intuiting its contents and the importance of those contents as I went. I was also, of course, trying to intuit its natural order. On 28 March, while I was there, I wrote back to the library As I've packed the collection, it's become clear that although most of the organisation was Peter's, there have been a couple of other hands at work. Peter clearly kept his own correspondence in box files for many years, and it also seems clear that the groupings I've established, that is the series structure, were pretty much the ones he established for himself. Um, I then go on to talk about some obvious movements of the material by hands other than Peter's, but I conclude... Overall, the collection is in original order, but with some disturbances, especially just before Peter's death. So these conclusions are precisely the ones that can only be established when you're taking a bird's eye view of a collection, trying to assess its shape and its heft, not its detail. But there are some things that are absolutely clear at both the macro and micro level. The first I've mentioned already, Peter's industry, The second is the length, strength, and breadth of relationships conducted largely by correspondence, not just with Australians, but with British poets too. And the third is related. And this is the one I would really, really like to see a PhD on, and one that I think might be doable in the current kind of academic environment. It seems to me that the archive provides incontrovertible evidence that Peter was probably the single most important force for decades by which Australian writers and poets gained an entree into the world of British letters. He's clearly a doorway between the two worlds, the connection point, the fulcrum, or as actually Nicholas so elegantly called him, the concierge between two closely related traditions, travelling side by side and occasionally meeting I believe that this archive would provide the richest possible evidence for tracing the network of relationships which made this possible, for investigating the ways in which individuals contribute to effective transnational cultural networks. So just to conclude, for me, archives are wild things, waiting patiently and biding their time. And this one is full of not just of possibilities, but of power just waiting to explode when opened. Thank you.